moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Cascading Leadership, the show. I am your host, Lawrence Brown, otherwise known as LB. Unfortunately, Dr. Jim could not be with us, but in the last show, he did a imitation of me. He was trying to use the deep voice and all of that. So what I did, I was kind enough to have my patch on today. So I'm wearing elbow patches for those of you that can't see us out there in the listening world. Today, we have an amazing guest with us. We always do, but I think that we're going to have a great, unique conversation. J.R. Moore. J.R. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself as we begin our journey into your origin? I'll be appreciate you having me here. As you said, my name is J.R. Moore. I'm in San Jose, California. I work for one of the tech companies out here in Silicon Valley. I'm in supply chain management, responsible for distribution, production, inventory planning, and demand planning for the, one of the product lines out here. All right, great. It sounds like you have a lot on your plate, especially when you talk about the whole idea notion of supply chain and all those challenges. And maybe we'll get a into that a little bit later. But what's your origin story? If you've heard yeah. our podcast, we start with origin story because the backstory is that Jim and I are heavy into comics. So what's your origin story? <laughs> I, I guess what I would say is my origin story isn't uh, su super unique. I think there's a lot of people that have a story similar to mine. I grew up a, a small town kid. I was lower middle class. And to, to give some context on that, where I grew up in uh, rural Illinois, there was a cornfield right behind me. There were the railroad tracks on the north side of my house. And on the south side of my house were the local junkyard. That's kind of where I came from. I started there. I was born into an interracial marriage. My, my father's black, my mother's white. And living in rural Illinois, in the 80s, that was unusual. There were definitely some challenges growing up in that environment, even though the town I was growing up in was actually the town that my father was born and raised and he grew up in. It was still a, a town that had known him. That relationship with my mom and being mixed race was a challenge. A little bit more about myself and my family. My worked fast food her entire life. My father worked corrections for the state his entire life. Again, as I said, we're lower middle class. We never had everything, but we always had enough. And I'm sure we'll get into, but definitely a lot of the things that I learned have driven and motivated me. I learned from the duality of that relationship with my parents, their work ethic, things I learned from them, as, as well as things I learned growing up outside of that. The things that you said, so challenges you had, and how did those help to shape your identity? In terms of being in, being a, one of a, only a handful of mixed race people mm -hmm. in the town that I grew up in, one of the things that was always interesting to me, it was always that came up, was this concept of microaggression. Little small comments, small slights that would be spoken. And sometimes even more significant. One of, one of the stories that's very vivid in my mind is as I was in junior high, my father went to the local elementary school to pick up my sister. And one of the teachers at school who did not know my father wouldn't let my sister go home. He was very concerned with this black man coming to pick up this child that 
didn't look black. And all of a sudden there was a big to do about that. That's one example, but there are others in, in terms of the racial implications of, of growing up in, in rural Illinois, as I said, in the 80s and the early 90s. Outside of that, we were very much your typical Midwestern family. We spent a lot of time going to sporting events. My brother and I played baseball, soccer, football, whatever that was around. We were involved. As I got older, I got involved in wrestling. My sister would get dragged to wrestling tournaments in the summers and hours and hours sitting in the bleachers. And I think that kind of led to her not really enjoying sports for herself. <laughs> spent a lot of time watching me and my brother. And outside of that, we spent a lot of time in a household where we were just out and about in the neighborhood. We were not really people that traveled very much. My parents really worked. One would work the day shift. One would work the night shift. Whenever one of them was home, usually where they were sleeping. And me and my brother and my sister were just out in the neighborhood meeting other kids around, trying to get in trouble and uh, trying not to have my parents find out about it. Yep. That's what we do as kids. One of the things we did was trying to get in trouble. I, I can identify. I know you, when you and I were talking a little bit before the show started that I appreciate the fact that you are a JR and I'm an LB. And we were joking about being called by the first name. So we, we do have that uh, commonality there. When the experience that you described with your father picking up your sister. Sure. Was there any conversation when it happened or, or after it happened? Was there anything about it that shaped perspective? There were really two conversations, I would say. One when I was a kid and it happened, and then one much later when I was an adult and I could revisit it with my father. At the time when it happened, interestingly enough, or what you may find interesting is my father, actually, the perspective he had was it was good. It was good the teacher wasn't certain of the situation and felt the need to intervene. What was interesting to me as I got older and had that conversation with him later, what I walked away with was this love embarrassment from him and not wanting to admit he was really angry about the situation and not wanting to demonstrate to his son that this other person could get in the way of his relationship with his child. This really played out when I was much older and I had my own kids. He came to visit us in San Jose. And one of the days he was visiting us, we asked him to pick up our kids from the school. We literally lived across the street from the school. And my wife was just, hey, would you mind going and picking up the kids when they get off of school? He said, absolutely. But before in that morning, can you take me over and introduce me to all three teachers so that they all know me so that I don't have the same situation that happened 30 years earlier? And something like that really stuck out to me again much later that this was a really uh, significant event in his life, but also one for Yeah. I honestly, internally, I, I shrieked a little bit because I think about a lot of the conversations that we have. I think it's great that your father did have one perspective, which was, this is my child. They are protecting my child. That certainly is, is the wish of, of every parent. But to your point on the other side of there's definitely this element of identity and the challenge with that as, as well. When I've talked to my sons, oftentimes in, in different ways, it's about having had the talk with them. And it's an uncomfortable conversation. Sometimes conversation from child to father and father to child are that thing to the extent that he was proactive about saying, hey, could you introduce me to the teachers? Something that's powerful. Now, as you've gone through some of that experience, and like you said, and certainly you talked about it being positive as well in the sure. environment that you grew up in. How did that shape the next phase? So you talked yeah. a little bit about middle school now. Absolutely. One of the things I learned from my parents, and one of the things I've carried with me, there's really two aspects. My, my father was a leader of men. He, he worked in an environment where he was the authority figure. He was in a correctional officer for juveniles. He was someone who was looking after juveniles who were in jail or in, for, for crimes they had committed, but he was there to 
to educate, develop, teach, try and get them to be able to be back on the straight and narrow, as you would say, when they came out of, of that situation. And then my mother, as I said, all worked her entire life in fast food. She was your quintessential grinder, always did for other people, never kept for herself, never said no to that extra hour of overtime or extra shit, was always doing whatever she could and coming home, taking care of me and my brother and my sister, never complained about any situation that she was in, even though I know that she was exhausted all the time. And I observed this. I saw other friends of mine whose parents weren't as dedicated and committed to them and creating as best of an environment as possible for them. And I really appreciated what my parents gave me in terms of that learning. Again, my father being this leader, my mother really being this. You described to me what it sounded like, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but you talk about like the idea of sacrifice. When you were talking about them, you could see beam with pride in the way that you grew up. We'll get into this like a little bit more, but the work sounds like that might've been where you may have gotten that from. Absolutely. I, I got my first job when I was eight years old, delivering newspapers. And it was one of those things where from eight years old until today, I've never not been working. That's from that work ethic, that idea to always be doing something, always be providing for my family or creating an opportunity to provide for myself has always been ingrained in me. And I definitely got that from both of my. So part of it, you talk about it from observation and but were there like direct conversations from either your mom, dad, or both around what the future would hold and how you would guide yourself? My, my parents were always very supportive that I could determine whatever future I had, whatever I wanted to do for myself was an opportunity for me. My father was someone who got drafted into the army, didn't get to finish his college degree, and really felt like he didn't have all of the options available to him. He got put into a path. He did not want that for us, for me, my brother, and my sister. He was very committed to letting us know if we got good grades, if we got into a good school, they would find a way to make all those things happen. And my career, my future could be whatever I set out for myself, which was as an eight-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old, heck, even as a 20-year-old, it's just great to have that support system and the constant reaffirmation that you can keep doing this and you can do whatever you want as long as you're committed to it. For the majority of the folks that we've had on the show, there's really been a critical element where someone early in their lives, and I like how you put it, like all the way back to eight, because I think uh, oftentimes we think role modeling and having mentors and having folks that advocate for us is later in life. How was high school? Yeah. Then we'll talk yeah. more about the college. Absolutely. High school was really interesting for me and defining for me in that I started to get different perspective on whether or not the ideas and things, the goals that I'd set my for myself were achievable. On the other hand, I've got my parents telling me, dedicate yourself to your studying, do really well in school, get good grades, you can do whatever you want. On the other hand, coaches, in some cases, guidance counselors, I'll, I'll tell that story in a moment, telling me maybe I need to adjust what I'm thinking. Two, two stories in particular. One, when I was in a sophomore in high school, we started looking at colleges and started going to the guidance counselor and started planning, hey, what do we want to do? Where do we want to go for college? What's our short list? And let's start working on that. I had set myself, set my bar really high. I wanted to go to the University of Chicago, very high academic school. Quite frankly, I wanted to go because the character Indiana Jones, that's the school that he went to. And he, I wanted to be an archaeologist. So why not school for the best archaeologist I know, Indiana Jones. I walk into this guidance counselor, African-American man in this small town. And I tell him, hey, I've got my sights set on this. I'm going to go be an archaeologist. I'm going to go to this great school. And as feedback, I'll never forget it. Well, people from this town don't go to schools like that. Mm -hmm. You might want to set your aspirations uh, a little bit closer to home. And that really set me back. That really took me back to say, wait a minute. No, 
I want to do this. I can do this. I, I, I don't need you to tell me yes or no. That's not your decision. You tell me how. I will figure out the how. I did have a couple of teachers that were very positive and motivating and definitely recognized that there was something in me. This mentality, I talked about my mother, this grinding mentality, this work ethic, it showed in my wrestling in the sense that I it was a sport that I didn't start doing until I was a freshman, until I was 14 years old. And I was known as the JV All-State because I could never break into the varsity lineup even until all through high school but I was always just working hard trying to get better I could beat everybody when I was a junior I could beat everybody as a freshman and sophomore but don't put me against other juniors but then finally something broke through my senior year I had a lot of success and I just had this coach just continue to motivate me and just tell me keep working hard and some good things will happen for you and they really did good things happened to me in the sport and that actually set me on a path for the rest of my college career or on my path to college through the sport of wrestling really opened a lot of doors for me that would not have otherwise been there I want to take a step back because there is something that you talked about. The other counselor tried to limit what you could do. I'm going to jump on my soapbox for two seconds here, maybe a little bit longer than two seconds. But I think that this is such a, a critical element for people to understand that these limiting beliefs oftentimes come from other people. We don't organically come up and say what we can't do. I think that parenting and having people in your life that are encouraging, like you mentioned, folks that are advocating for you from the teachers that you said that showed that you had to the wrestling coach are the ones that help to reinforce what you were getting in the home in terms of your parents saying, hey, you can do whatever it is that you put your mind to. Oftentimes, when you hear people saying or telling children or other adults what they can't do, it's really more about the limiting and disempowering beliefs that they have for themselves. When we talk about unconscious bias, this is one of those examples to me of unconscious bias where this person says, oh, no one makes it out of here. And thank goodness you had folks that help you to, again, have a healthy self-perception to say, no, nah, that's not going to be me. And, and then you move forward into really pushing it. When you think about the whole idea of how well you were doing with your wrestling, you never know how much that a catalyst that may have been. I wrestled too for a little while and you get to go in there and work out some things. So where did the wrestling and the academics ultimately? Not where I thought it was going to take me at first. As I said, my, my goal was to go to the University of Chicago. It just so happened that the head wrestling coach at the University of Chicago was a family friend. Uh, a close friend of my father's, he actually went to the same high school where I was going. I thought I was going to have an opportunity. Here I am. By the time I was a senior, I thought I was a star athlete. And I had seen the movies. Star athletes get to go to whatever school they want. Doesn't quite work out that way. I did not get accepted into the University of Chicago. So now I'm stuck. Now I'm thinking to myself, oh, my my dream, my goal, it shattered. Fortunately, I had, I again, relying back on my parents, I say, well, there's alternative paths to get to this school. Who says you need to go there as a freshman? What if you go somewhere else, get your grades up? and then transfer. So I did that. So I took this wrestling career I was setting up for myself. I went to the University of Illinois, went and wrestled on that team, got better at my craft, but at the same time was able to apply myself in the classroom. One of the things that I think hurt me getting into the University of Chicago was, as I said, I was from a really small school. I was going, I was competing to get into schools with people that were taking AP classes, some of them taking AP classes starting in junior high. Those were not things that were available to me. But now here I am at a university, at a prominent university, and doing very well. At the end of my freshman year, I reapplied to the University of Chicago and got accepted and moved at that point, decided I was going to leave U of I, go to University of Chicago. And after, again, nonlinear path, here I am at the university where I wanted to go. Funny story. Unfortunately, the university did not accept many of the credits for the classes that I had taken at, at University of Illinois. So I'm starting from scratch again, but that was a blessing as well because it gave me four more years to really get this great education, take as many classes as I possibly could. That also gave me a little bit more time 
time to, to compete as a wrestler while I was in college. Yeah, that's something about that perspective of the, of the unintended consequence of life sometimes. I think in a lot of ethnically diverse communities and immigrant families, particularly when first coming over, don't necessarily know the rules of engagement. And like the reason I pre- status quo families will do gap years or sometimes they intentionally hold students back because they see that there is a gap in learning. There's a gap in understanding. And what that allows is for a, a child to develop. And I say this all the time about people who are so concerned about getting out of college at a certain time. And I'm like, I'm pretty sure no one's going to ask how old you are. At least they shouldn't. But it's, it's not going to be a relevant question for taking that extra time that turns out to be something that is an absolute blessing in disguise. And so I'm, I'm happy that worked out for you in, in that way. And this resilience, I think that as when I'm thinking and listening to stories of our guests and, and their journeys, for some reason, resilience just keeps coming up in my mind about JR. Is like, you have proved you're going to try and get to the, the next level of what it is that you decided that you want to do. That drop takes you to what next step? I'm going through university. I'm trying to figure out what I want to do. I had my mindset on being an archaeologist, and then I took a class, and that class had me spending 40 hours a week in a lab, sifting through dirt, looking at pollen samples. I asked my professor, hey, how much of my time as an archaeologist is going to be this versus like in the field, digging, planning, strategizing? She thankfully told me 90% of my job, 90% of my career is right here in the lab looking at this dirt. That's when I knew I had to do something different. That was not what I wanted to do. Try to figure out what I'm going to do as I'm graduating college. 9-11 happens. Uh, A lot of the opportunities that I was pursuing at that time were gone. I end up taking a move. I end up trying to find the the best opportunity. As I said, I'd never not had a job since I was eight years old. And a company that I had interned with while I was an undergrad offered me a full-time position. Here I am going into a sales role. I've got a mountain of debt, but I know that I need to work. And this was a company where there was a future. There was a path. There was a way that you could be really successful. You could be very independent, run your business the way you want to. Even though I wasn't getting what I thought I was going to get when I went to college, I was still able to define, or I was going into a job, going into a company where I could define what success was for me. And that was really appealing to me. I spent four years working for that company and really trying to define, learn a lot uh, about running a business and all different aspects. It really sounds familiar the way you described that uh, career path there. Could be, it sounds similar to to something I may have done in the past and Jim may have. (laughs) I think there's a lot of great people that came out of there. I think the experience is very similar. But again, I think as you learned, as Jim learned, there's a lot of tools that you get in that environment where you're responsible for customers, but also for your own employees. People day to day, you see the impact of the work that you're doing. I think it teaches you a lot about respecting your customer, a lot about knowing and understanding your business. And I think that's applicable lots of places. And, and you talk about resiliency, no no more, no better place to be resilient than that. Washing cars and beautiful and all of that good stuff. And we're probably giving it away, but it was deemed back when I was there as the on-the-job MBA. And I can tell you sure. from that point forward, the emotional intelligence that you learn, the end-to-end about running or running a business, I think you're exactly right. I, I think that it's such a unique experience and how much accountability and autonomy that you gain almost day one instead of someone being over your shoulder. It's, well, what do you think? How would you figure it out? How would you do it? Yeah. Right. It's a great training and proving ground for folks in their career. What was your plan? Did you plan to stay there? And when you shifted, what was the reason for the shift? I, I really enjoy it. I love that. I love my work there. My my wife has a, a different take. She ate alone a lot of nights. She would help wash cars on Sundays with the radio on to get ready for Monday. But I really enjoyed it. And I thought I was going to be there forever. There was a personal event. Two friends of mine were passed away and I had a look at life and I said, am I doing enough to give back? 
am I doing enough for myself and to provide a future for my family? I felt there were two things I really wanted to do. I wanted to get that actual M and I wanted to go and spend more time with students. I wanted to go back to my love of wrestling. I left that company to find a company that was actually going to help pay for my MBA. And at the same time, I coached full time. I went and I coached at the University of Chicago, coached the wrestling team there as an assistant for six years while I was working at and getting my MBA part time. That gave me a different perspective. I had a very, trying to be an archaeologist, anthropologist, I had a very social science oriented background. I was very good working with people from my experience in customer service. But at the same time, I didn't have the technical side of running a business. I didn't know anything outside of what I learned on the job about balance sheets and trying to think about investments for my company. I thought I was going to be an entrepreneur for a little bit, and this was what I needed, I felt. To do. However, while I was getting my MBA, I was working at this company, this industrial supply company in Chicago. I met a lot of really great, smart people working in supply chain, literally moving nuts and bolts. And it really inspired me to recognize that there were this type of job, supply chain as a career really was interesting and was fun. At the end of the day, supply chain, what I found is there's a new problem every day. Problem solving was really something I enjoyed. I needed to get more technical side, more better understanding of supply chain infrastructure, management systems and approach, but I felt I could do that job. And certainly I really wanted to continue to work with people. I felt that I could be a manager and eventually a leader in supply chain. I thought my experience is all led me to this idea of creative approach to, to address problems. I needed that sheet of paper so that I could prove to other companies that I could do it. Yeah. What contributed to your, to make these different shifts? And I asked this question because I think it's important for our audience to hear because the folks tend to look at their career like this. It's just a, it's just a yes. ladder. And so I oftentimes use this and I probably overused it as part of the show, but your career is a lattice instead of a ladder. Where do you, where did that end? I think for one, just to step back, I think this idea of, again, that experience I had getting into college, what I would call the nonlinear path was really important to me. And I found through conversations with other people at the university and in my early career, a nonlinear path doing things horizontally to eventually go vertically allowed you to gain tools and expertise that you wouldn't be able to gain if you just went straight vertically. So if you felt there was an area that you needed improvement on, trying to go up to get that is likely not the best approach. I got some of that from leaders at the university. I got some of that from leaders within the, the company that, that both you and I worked for. I, I got some of that from my experience as a wrestling coach and recognizing that within the apparatus that is college athletics, it's not always always job here to next big time coaching program. Sometimes it's similar job in another program and define it differently here. Address your recruiting at this program, address your technique at this program, put it all together to then get a, a, a more prestigious role. I think all of those things together, I've always been very intentional in planning my career, but I've tried to absorb as much as possible on how other people have managed their career to figure out a path and approach that works for me. I hear what you're saying. It's also your ability to connect connect dots as well. We're always getting advice from others that have done it their way or have offered recommendations. But the whole idea of being able to connect those dots is also an important element in one's career and development. You, you mentioned that you got your MBA. Where did you get your MBA? I went back to the University of Chicago. I, I didn't want to leave home. I, yeah. I wanted to stay close to home. And when I looked at it again, I'd had the other MBA programs like Northwestern or Net Soft Skill side. I had that education already. I really needed the hard science. For me, Chicago was the best fit for that. 
It's a great program and certainly being one of the top institutions in the world didn't hurt. The industrial organization you had worked with, how did that influence the next phase? Were you able to shore up some of those skills you said you needed? Absolutely. McMaster Car Supply Company has been in the Struggling area for over 100 years. And they're this very interesting organization where they're a small business, they're a leader in, as I said, shipping nuts and bolts. But inside the organization, you have really smart people from all over the country and all over the world solving these really acute supply chain problems. One of the things that I, that really is memorable for me in my career there is you get to write white papers in this company about how you solve, how you improve the efficiency of receiving product into the, fa- into the warehouse. Something that seems very mundane, but they're almost taking an academic approach to understanding every aspect of their role. For me, what I gained in that experience was the ability to go deep on a concept. Take a particular process, as I said, receiving boxes of inventory and analyze it from every potential angle, spend days, weeks looking at data to try to find the nuggets that will lead you to a more efficient outcome. That wasn't my experience in in my previous career. Get it done fast, get it done with a smile, get people on their way and get to the next customer. This was take your time, go deep, look at it from different angles, change small things, do A-B testing, see what works, what doesn't work. It gave me an appreciation for being very methodical in understanding your business, which was not something I had before. As I transitioned later in my career, which I'm sure we'll get into, that methodical approach, that ability to go deep has allowed me to set myself apart in my current company. So there are people that I've worked with throughout my career that I say, I'm going to stay with them no matter what. I'm going to stalk them and to keep them in my life. So Yeah, Yeah. I, I have a different take slightly. I don't like to think about the idea as mentors and mentees, really because that sets up a connotation of they have information I need to follow to be successful. I tend to think about this idea of getting varied perspective and I want to get perspective from as many people as I possibly can, but there are definitely people in my career. Some of them have been peers. Some of them have been subordinates. Some of them have been leaders where I get really good perspective. They have approaches on thinking about their career or particular challenges. I find interesting. There's a very close friend of mine when I started at Apple and he was actually my first teammate in the product that I was working and we've worked together off and on for my entire 12-year career. He even left Apple for a time, but I still go to him even when he wasn't working at the company to get his perspective on my career and how to think about philosophically how to strategize because he's got really good insight. I mentioned my wrestling coaches both in high school and college. Definitely my college coach is somebody I still rely on to this day to get perspective. Not necessarily specific about how to think about my career, just how to think about life, how to understand, how to investigate particular areas. Even if you're a wrestling coach at the University of Chicago, you're around all these great academics, you're going to learn something about how to be an academic. And I like that approach. I like having an academic approach when I try and problem solve or think about my career. And then of course, I'm sure like a lot of us, there's family members that offer different things to you, not necessarily in business, but other parts of perspective. My wife is definitely someone, she's an author and her perspective on how to work with people, how to promote myself, how to try to find the right ways to highlight my skills is something that I have absolutely learned from her. And I consistently ask her opinion and point of view when I'm trying to set the next move in my career. I've done that for for over a decade. That's also a great call out. JR, you let the cat out of the bag. I was supposed to intro that that big news about being at Apple. I I apologize. I'm not very good with secrets. Yeah, I see. I see. So let's talk about that. Tell me a little bit about transitions. Was Apple after McMaster? It absolutely was. And one of the the colleagues that I had at McMaster Car, actually, we were getting our MBA at the same time, working at McMaster Car together, getting our MBA in the same school. He left 
uh, McMaster and joined Apple. And that was in 2009. And then in 2010, gave me a phone call and said, this company is is hiring people that do similar work to what we were doing in, in McMaster. I think you'd be, you'd enjoy it. I think you'd be a good fit for it. Why don't you come check it out? And so that, that relationship that I established led me to Apple. I, I've been working in supply chain for Apple for the last 10, 12 years, various functions, various roles and functions. Sometimes here in the Bay Area, I've worked abroad for Apple for a few years as well, but always in this supply chain realm and really based on those relationships I built. Moreover, we've brought other people from this company into Apple over time because there's a lot of skill sets we find that are similar uh, and beneficial from what we learned at McMaster. The abroad element, how has that shaped your perspective? It allowed me to recognize very vividly that just because something is important to me in this role, it may not be important to other people elsewhere. There is this idea of global and local and trying to understand the duality and trying to understand how do you communicate to people in a different environment based on what you know is important for other parts of the company. It also got me back closer to my roots. It allowed me to get closer to our customers in that more local role, which was something I hadn't had since my first job out of college. So that, that kind of gave me some reinvigoration and some perspective that there's opportunities within this massive company to do lots of different things. And I can always find ways to get some balance between what does the company need and what do I need to be motivated and energized and really enjoy my work. JR, a question that I have is you hear the conversation around globalization and a lot of leaders talk about how they struggle with it or it's different. But what are some of the similarities that you may have that you may have seen in your I think there's a culture all companies, all global companies try to create what wherever they are, whether it's a in a US centric or in a, another locale. And I think that culture is strong. The focus on customers, the focus on the, the business, the products, the decisions that we can make is really similar no matter where you're at. I think that's definitely been my experience, not even just with my own company, but with my friends that I met when I was abroad, uh, when I was living in Singapore and working there and how they ran, how they interact in their companies as well. It's really about culture. I've been pleasantly surprised by, by how similar working in different parts of the world is. That's awesome to hear. You've been there about 10, 12 years there at Apple. In terms of, of teams, how do you work with your teams? What's like some of your philosophies? How do you encourage the, the best out of the teams that you have? I believe with my teams that what's important is giving them control over their own career, giving them the opportunity to set the parameters for success and help work with them on what they can do today to enable their success and get to their own. Industry. I found that is definitely how I've been successful at motivating and driving my teams. I've read a book. It's called uh, Radical Candor by Kim Scott. She used to work for Apple. She would be in conversations with Steve Jobs. She talks about the culture there of being open and transparent. I've actually had a recent client. We were having this conversation that somehow folks think that being candid is a bad thing. And so what I try to do is, is help them to understand there really isn't a good or a bad. It is you are simply explaining what the situation is so people are clear and then that you're being as receptive as possible to hear it without adding a filter to it. And of course, we're humans, so there's no 100% sure. that this is going to happen. But I think it becomes critical that, like, one of my favorite sayings is one of my opportunity areas is that I don't read minds. I appreciate people being candid with me as opposed to dancing around the issue because I could truly miss it. You seem along that path of taking ambiguity out of the conversation when you were. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I feel passionate about is that idea of being clear and direct. That information is data. I'm a very data driven individual. I, I try to remove as much new 
nuance as possible. I try to get it to a point where I can actually understand and get my arms around a problem. And having that data is helpful for me. So I absolutely encourage that type of direct feedback and direct conversation for everybody to have with a leadership team. You've talked about in other organizations where you come into contact with leaders or like when you're assistant coach and head coach, what's your philosophy around managing up? Absolutely. I think it's understand that you are the expert about you and know that no one knows you better than you. Who is better to speak forceful and intelligently about yourself than you? Whether it's your goals, your challenges, your motivations, there is no better person than you to articulate that information to your leadership. So, so absolutely, managing up is about clarity, transparency, and honest conversation. It's also about documentation. It's also about making sure when you have that conversation with your manager, with your second level manager on, these are the goals that I have. Help me understand what are the development areas I need to work on to get to those goals that I have. Once you've got that, write that down, get that in an email, socialize that, say, hey, here's what we discussed. Make sure what you took away is absolutely what they meant. But that, that's one, to make sure you, you've got that clarity. But it also creates this opportunity for you to confirm what you think. And then as you digest information, you digest feedback, you digest that conversation, you can respond to that email and come back with, these are the thoughts I have on how I want to do better in these areas, get some opportunity in these areas. Here's what I can do, but here's Mr. Mismanager I need from you in order for me to do that. Here's how you can enable my success in these areas. And that creates dual accountability that I think is so important for people managing their careers. We often have this point of view, this expectation that companies, individuals, managers always have everyone's best interest at heart, almost to our own demise. The idea that if I do a good job, good things will happen. That is definitely how I feel like I grew up with that understanding that if I just, my mom in case, if I do a good job at the restaurant, things are going to be good. My father, if I do a good job working for the state, I will get promoted. That doesn't always happen. Really what, what I found is even if there is individual managers want to be supportive and want to drive and support your career, they also want you to be really good right where you are for them. How do you make sure that you let them know this is, or it's very important to let them know, this is what I want to get out of this relationship. This is what I want to get out of this role, this conversation, this discussion. And if we're aligned that this is the thing I need to do to go get there, I will take care of that. I will go do the work. I will put in the effort and I will come back to you along the way and check in and make sure I'm doing this stuff and we're all on the same page. But when I get to the end and I've done those things, I expect I expect the good results that you and I spoke about. Wow. JR, you said so much. I don't know where to begin. I'm ready to <laughs> jump out of my chair. Wow. Hold on. Let, let me get here. You are the expert about you, I think spot on. I think it centers someone in a space of being a subject matter expert and making them feel like they can go into a conversation, whatever that conversation is. I and mean, here we're talking specifically about your development. I love the idea notion of ad hoc development, right? You don't wait for the first quarter, second quarter, whatever the cadence is for where you are. I think that what you're talking about is so much more intentional. And it was actually a segue. You've already answered it was going to be give me some items on being at the head and owning your own career from day one, you, you just covered that, right? You'd say a little bit more if you want, but I just, it was, I was just like, okay, like, this is really hot. Like all of this. Another call out though, is that what generally happens oftentimes, generally no stereotyping because I don't get into that, but what studies and research does show though, is women and uh, ethnically diverse populations, we do lean heavily on the idea of nose to the grindstone, work super hard and people will notice. 
But the reality is that to your point, you have to be intentional about this is what I'm doing. And we don't necessarily do a great job of tuning our own horn. But here, what you just described is a great way of doing that because you're not really tuning your horn. You're stating, exactly. you're asking the question, what are the things that I need to do to be better, to get better? You document them, you clarify them to make sure that you're on the same page. And then you seek and destroy, you go out and you try and, and accomplish those things. And something else that you also mentioned that is really critical in your career, that checkpoint. Don't go all the way through it, through a check. And if you're solid, and if you then maybe you go to 75%, but those are also opportunities, again, to have those conversations that yeah. are organic and how you move from, and I'm 100% with you, you said this earlier, I'm not a huge fan of mentoring to this extent. Don't become over-mentored. The That's way right. that I see mentorship is you should be cultivating that into an experience when you're gaining advocacy. I think a lot of us are wanting to be mentored. And like you said, it becomes this very formalized relationship. And I don't know that you don't need that for the, maybe at some point in your career, but you don't need it for long periods of time. In my humble opinion, that's just me. Just an amazing display of elements that I think are really cool. Thank you. You mentioned the word intentional. It's come up a couple of times in our conversation. I really think that is key. You and Dr. Jim want to set out the, want to give people the, the cheat codes. I don't know if I believe they're cheat codes, but definitely it's been successful for me. This idea of being very intentional and deliberate on owning my own career and forcing those conversations. Some of the things I will say, some things I will add though on this on this step is it's, I don't want to set the expectation tomorrow, everybody should walk into their boss's office and say, hey, tell me what I need to do to be better, to, to do better. Be reasonable, be proactive, ask for the feedback, but also ask in advance, give the say, hey, I really want to have this conversation. I really want to learn what are the things that you see I need to be working on to get better. Can we talk in a week? Give you some time to get your thoughts together. As a manager, as a leader myself, one of the hardest things is when I haven't been proactive myself in thinking about what are the things that could come up in this conversation with someone? Are they going to ask for feedback? I may not have gotten, I may have cursory feedback. I may not have all the details. So be proactive, but give people some opportunity to think about it before you put them on the spot. You have richer conversation in that. I agree. I think to your point, JR, is also it's this idea of grace as well. Being mindful of someone else's time, being mindful that they may not have the answer either, but you can work, you can work towards that. And I certainly believe that you do have to, in fact, give people a lot of lead time. And, and sometimes your first manager, your second level manager, you said, may not have the answer. And back to myself, this idea of seeking multiple perspectives on the how. They're, they may be able to tell you the what. We think that you need to do this better. We think that this is a gap. This is an opportunity for you. But they may not have the what. They may not have the, sorry, they may not have the how on to address that. Ideally, that comes from yourself. Ideally, you think about what do I want to do that works for me that will help address this area. But ask other people too, you're probably not the only person that's had that challenge. Try and find other ways that people address those things. You might find something that works really well for you without having to reinvent. I have two questions for Please. you. The first question is that I, I think we maybe have, uh, we've come up on this a little bit, but we haven't really talked about it. But one, the first question is that your perspective on handling constructive feedback, because oftentimes when you go in and you ask these questions, people, I think, are going and asking the question, they're going to say, I'm amazing and I'm ready and may not be ready for the constructive feedback. What's your take on the constructive feedback? And then what would you say would be JR three key takeaways and moving your career further, faster? Let's start with the constructive feedback piece. I am a classic middle child. I am always feeling like I need to do better. I'm always open to the idea of the constructive feedback more than I am for the praise. I want that constructive feedback because I know that for me to reach my goals, it's not about what I've done, it's what I'm going to be doing. So anytime I go in a conversation, the praise is great and be appreciative of it. But I know for myself, I'm 
when I'm doing good work. I want to help people. I really want people to help me understand where are my opportunities. I'm not sure if that's answering your question, but that's my perspective on it. In terms of some key takeaways, or I, I think that was how you asked the question. I, I think about this, I, I try not to come up with tropes and things, but this has been working for me. This idea of awareness, like understand what are the challenges that you have? Understand what that feedback is. Don't just dismiss it. If someone told you this is something that you, they think you need to work on, there's definitely, there's likely something behind it. So just be aware of those things, but also be aware that there are other perspectives out there. So seek those multiple perspectives. Also in this idea of awareness, it's understand your own motivations. I brought it up. I brought it up a couple earlier, but it's not fair for you expect that your leadership knows what your motivations are. Be aware of them and communicate those, those motivations too, because that might help them think about better ways to challenge you, better opportunities to put in front of you if they understand what you're really motivated. We talked about proactiveness, so I won't talk about that one, but I will say this is definitely one. You talked about resiliency, and I think diligence is another one here. Always driving those consistent conversations about development. Make sure you're having that conversation. It's so it's very often to get into a conversation with your manager or your leader to just focus on the work. Make sure you are being diligent and setting aside the time to talk about your... And then this last one for, for me is really important. It's this idea of playlists and not checklists. Oftentimes people will think about feedback as it's a checklist. You tell me something I need to go work on. I worked on that thing. It's done. I move on. I put it to the side and I go to the next thing on the list. I think of it more like it's a playlist and you may need to recycle through that playlist. You may need to have it on shuffle and come back to some of those areas of development throughout your career. There are definitely things that I was given feedback on when I first joined uh, the company. 10, 12 years later are still feedback for me. And I've consistently been working on those things. And even if I feel like I've closed it for a short term, I really need to demonstrate that I've owned it for a long period of time before I feel like I can not worry about it anymore. So definitely revisit those previous development areas, keep them in constant rotation, if you will. Those are some of the other uh, tips, I guess, I, I would say. Yeah, that playlist and not a checklist. I'm just going to be writing. On, I've written down a lot of stuff. And so if you see quotes, I'll be sure to quote. I am. And if you see something fly by on LinkedIn, I'll be sure to have J.R. Moore. For those of you that are listening, this is a reason why you want to go out and actually jump on LinkedIn right now and look up J.R. Moore and connect with him. He has obviously given us a great amount of, of information. J.R., we appreciate having you on. The I just want to share with everyone that this is Cascading Leadership Podcast that we call the show. You can find us on various social media platforms. We're on Facebook, TikTok. Go check out TikTok for sure. Uh, Dr. Jim has a funny one out there. We're on LinkedIn and we are going to be continuing to grow. The social media platforms are where you'll be able to find the most recent updates. So be on the look of when uh, J.R. Moore is going to. J.R., we appreciate having you on the show. Perhaps we can have you back on because I know there's a ton more information that you'll be able to share with us but thank you so much i really appreciate it thank you thank you to your listeners and anytime i'm, I'm always available for you and jim thank you for listening to this episode of cascading leadership we hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player follow us on youtube tiktok linkedin twitter and facebook leave us a review tell a friend if you're interested in sponsoring the show reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.